This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to another episode of our mini-series. Today's news story comes out of China. The 40th Chinese Antarctic Research Expedition has set sail on the 1st of November. It's a scientific research journey scheduled to last more than five months and their key task is building a new Antarctic station near the Ross Sea. This will be China's first research station dedicated to the Pacific sector of Antarctica and is planned to be finished by February 2024, which is an amazing task to think that you're building a research station in the middle of nowhere in that quick of time. This is a project with a heavy focus on international cooperation with partnerships with the UK, the US, Italy, South Korea, Australia, Russia, Chile, and even your Norway, Matt. I know, it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. I mean, I'm a firm believer that the, um, the, the kind of future forecasting of our Earth is definitely found on Earth, just sadly in areas we've been yet to explore. Um, so having mm. more opportunity to kind of access these areas and the fact that they can hold or hoping to have up to 80 research personnel in the summer and 30 in the winter is pretty incredible. And that's a huge amount of different trades coming together from multiple different countries and being able to share that knowledge. I think that's a, an, an awesome opportunity. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, when we started talking about, you know, doing this podcast and now we've started the podcast, we wanted to showcase all these different adventures to be had and how one could get involved with it, regardless of their background or, you know, technical trade. You know, there is a role for everybody. So today we want to highlight some of the different ways that you can get involved with expeditions because we know everyone wants to get out there and have an adventure. So Matt, let's start by talking a bit of how we both got into expeditions. How did you do it? My journey started from a, a really young age. Um, my father used to take me out all over the place. We'd do anything from caving, climbing, um, hiking. I've got horrific tales of clambering up the three peaks, Yorkshire three peaks every year being dragged around to win um, to win trophies. I, I definitely think that's where my trauma of mountains comes from. Um, but yeah, so I was out an awful lot and that, that led into um, obviously me joining the military and then, you know, that opened up this huge exposure of different environments to me. Um, I got really interested in, in like bushcraft um, and kind of wilderness living skills and I was you know, I, would, I was a bit weird, really. I would disappear off and kind of, you know, do hand friction, fire lighting and, um, and try and, uh, instead of going to the pub. Um, so I, I really just kind of fell in love with it. And then it was just a progression of that, you know, meeting friends, going on um, courses and trips and getting myself out on more expeditions and learning more things um, that it all just fell into place. Yeah, and you've been doing this for a while now, like considering yeah, how long you've been doing it and obviously you had a skilled trade in the army am i right in thinking as well? yeah i did yeah so i originally joined as a vehicle recovery mechanic so that's a pretty useful you know and we're going to be talking about you know all the different ways into it but having that background already you know you've got a technical skill there you know, going into expeditions i think that's the hardest thing to do is to build those technical skills. And that's what I've been trying to do for the past two years is become like a Swiss army knife in a sense that you can deal with vehicles when they break down. You're good in, in a kitchen, at least with basic stuff. But you really do need to, to be able to be so multifaceted. You know, I fell into the outdoors through my own accord. You know, I, I went on very nice trips. I love to surf. You know, my mom would sit on the beach and allow me to play in the waves for hours upon hours. But climbing up mountains or you know, going into jungles and stuff, that's stuff I really wanted to push myself to do 
and you know the cadets are a massive thing and you know helping me really establish my love of it and learning some skills and then just going off and just practicing yeah. doing courses and doing all that but you know what we wanted to talk about today was you know all the different routes in and there are so many different routes you know you, you've talked about you know you know, the fact that you've got a background in vehicle mechanics, but that's not the only role that you've done. You've done quite a lot of different roles in expeditions. Can you just run us through those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's always really smart to to kind of reference that. You've got to have the passion for the outdoors first. You know, you've got to have a passion for mm. kind of what it is you're doing. Um, but in regards of expeditions, like I've done all sorts. I've done all sorts from mechanic. The, the two things that really held the best for me was coming out of the military as a, a vehicle recovery mechanic and also being a team medic. Those two things combined mm. opened up a lot of opportunities in the expedition world, um, along with a kind of multitude of other skill sets that you pick up along the way. So you become that Swiss army knife, um, where you can teach weird and wonderful things. So that really does help. But I mean, the roles you'll find on expeditions are really, really vast. You know, you've got anything from, as I've mentioned, medics, and I'm not a medical um, person. I have, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a paramedic. Um, you know, guiding as I do, you know, work yourself up, have the experience, be the actual guide, the person who organizes and runs the expedition on the ground. You've got the kind of expedition leaders, people who are kind of on their way up. Technical assistance, and that can be anything from mechanics, as mentioned, to, um, you know, scientific equipment technicians or anything that's going on on a particular trip. Photographers, I mean, photographers are possibly one of the most important people on the expedition because otherwise no one knows it happened. We can't share them on Instagram and we ultimately, you know, for businesses, we can't sell them again. It's, mm. I think photography and videography has become the huge focal point of, of any kind of expedition now. It's certainly where you're going to get your sponsorship from and, uh, and those kind of elements. And then you've got, you know, your drivers, your fixers, the cooks. All of these people are vital to the success of an expedition. And they're all an in. All of them are a kind of way yeah. in to the industry where you can start to open up more trips and ultimately then work your way into that final goal of what it is you set out to achieve, you know, what it was you decided you wanted to become. And I think that's so true. I think a lot of people, when you hear that, will think, you know, a lot of the fixers and chefs that I've, you know, worked with on expeditions have been locals. But at the same time, you know, we've just talked about Antarctica at the start of this podcast. You know, the British Antarctic Survey, they have a whole team that they'll take British uh, expats, you know, down to Antarctica. There's companies like ALE that work in Antarctica. They hire chefs. They hire, you know, I applied to be one of their sort of vehicle, you know, specialists in terms of maintaining skidoos and then drilling holes in ice. Yeah. You know, there are lots of jobs which are manual labor intensive. If you're happy digging a hole, you know what I mean, <laughs> in 30-mile-per-hour in winds with 80-mile-per-hour gusts with very little sleep, Exactly but if you're happy doing in. that, there, <laughs> there's, there's a role out there and there's a role out there for you, whether you're starting out from scratch to, you know, if you've been doing it for decades. And I think the thing is that a lot of people will say, OK, I, I want to go to Antarctica and that we all, uh, a lot of us want to go to Antarctica or you want to go climb mountains. Most people apart from Matt want to go do that. But there are adventures closer to home and expeditions closer to home where you can build experience before going on these far-flung ones. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, we've actually talked about this ourselves, but you know, I've been coming up to northern Norway and doing guiding uh, as a sled guide and things for mm. quite a lot of years. I really enjoy that. It's a fantastic thing to do. 
it's a really great way to kind of repolish your guiding skills, how you're talking to the clients. Working with different people every day throws up different problems and challenges every single day. And you just build up that repertoire. And there's so many of these kind of things where you can take six months out, especially if you're young and you've got this, you know, a bit more freedom with your life. There's so many opportunities like that available, especially within tourism, these kind of things, where you can get out and really nail down these skill sets. And where do you think, obviously, mountains are a no-go for you from the age of 16, but where do you think that niches come into it? Like, for me, I love the jungle, and I love and I love oceans. Those are my two, like, massive favourite things that I love. And, I, and polar comes in there as well. That's, like, the trifecta. But, obviously, trying to get experience in all of them, there's obviously skills that are transferable between them. I'm focusing much more on the diving more than anything else at the moment. Choosing niches, is it good to start early with a niche? Is it good to experience quite a lot then choose a niche? What do you think? I think it's always best to, um, you know, I guess if you asked me today, Matt, when you joined the army, would you have joined a recovery mechanic? I would have said no, because I now know all the great jobs that were available, right? <laughs> so um, it's the same with expeditions. I, there's some really cool mm-hmm. jobs. There's some really cool locations and things you've never heard of. I mean, I literally... I find new ones every week. Every week I hear about another great opportunity that I'd never heard of that's been running for the last 20 years. So I would say find a way in with what you've got. You know, Find a way in with what skill sets that you've got and then try a bit of all of it. Try all of it. Take as many of those, you know, those people you're going to meet. You're going to meet a huge amount of people and the networking within this industry is huge. Everybody you meet, you go on courses with them or instructional staff you meet, you can increase the size of your network and then really expand your opportunities and take as many. When you find the one that you think, that's it, I love the jungle or I found my love of diving and I want to focus on these kind of things, then you know where you're at. But I would, I would absolutely give yourself the opportunity to experience as much as you can because it's all amazing experience. You're totally right. There are so many opportunities out there. But I think it's really important to address and it's something which I struggle to navigate at times is that because there are so many opportunities out there, but there's also so many people out there that want to do it, that people have to be really careful about choosing opportunities that they're ready for. You know, you're not putting yourself, and it's a really big thing I say to people, is that if there is a technical skill that they're asking you that you need to be able to do, you can't lie and, you know, this is not a, a place where you can bollock your way through it. If they're saying you need to be able to do rope skills yeah. and tie up, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> be able to send gear down a, a waterfall. you got to be able to do that because if they then ask you to, okay, we're going to do abseiling down the side of a waterfall. If you're not confident in setting up those systems, you got to be able to say, I don't know. And the best thing to say is, look, in the application, I've said it before and I, I got given a job anyway, is... I don't know how to do these skills. I know how to do these skills and I'm willing to learn these. Yeah. And they were happy to take me on. But I said from the very start that I can't, you know, I can't do something. So that's one bit. And I think the other bit that I find really frustrating with the fact that there are so many people that want to do it is that people will ask you to do work either for free or they'll cover your travel expenses or you'll, they'll do everything but travel expenses or they will cover your travel expenses. Okay, so then I'm cost neutral. But the worst one is when, you know, once you've been doing it for a while, they're asking you to, to keep paying to do stuff. And I think that we talked about it in the past. It's companies that even ask fully qualified doctors to pay to go on yeah. an expedition and be the doctor. So how, 
how do you navigate that map? Because obviously, you know, for me, you know, declaration, I went on courses and I paid to learn skills. I, I came up to Norway with you. It's how I met you. It's really how I sort of got into all of this and started to make a career out of it. And I was able to do that. And now I'm in a place where I can start getting paid for something because I've built up skills. But where does that transition come to? When you, know, you said to me the other day, I need to value my time. When do we start valuing our time compared to, you know, learning skills? Obviously, we're always learning. But when does that transition happen? I think you've got to make, you've got to always be aware that, yes, you've got to value your time. But B, you've got to value other people. So you've got to remember what you're asking for mm. when you're doing it. So you've got to allow for that exchange to happen in your head. So if you're going to spend time coming to uh, a company to learn things and you're going to maybe work as an apprentice or so you go and do a course, I mean, obviously you've got to start somewhere, right? You're going to have to tick off some of these boxes to make you employable in the first place. So some really good ones would be these kind of basic wilderness medic style courses where you can get in there, get an understanding of what it's like to be around. Um, on these, you're going to meet the companies that are running these kind of courses. It's if you if it interests you, then it's certainly advisable to start making friends, um, because there's often opportunities that come up as internships or basic apprentices, helpers on running courses and stuff. I would I would start in in that sense, but then you've got to remember as soon as you you enter that, you you you're getting access to quite a lot. You're getting access to a, a much broader network, one that you would have never had access mm. to even just by being added to a WhatsApp group, that all of a sudden sure. the people in that WhatsApp group are the kind of people that you want to be in five, 10 years time. So you've just basically been given the key to, if you do all the right things now, you could make some really, really important and influential friends, which could ensure that you're going to have you know plenty of work coming up. So I think that's one of the best ways in that I would recommend doing is if it interests you in a particular thing, whatever that is, if you want to go and do a, a four-wheel drive driving course somewhere, you know, if, if it really strikes you as this is what I want to do, I want to be an expedition driver in Africa, that's where you need to start applying mm. for work. You need to start ringing companies. And so I, I guess that's it. Once you'll, you'll find your own niche in, I think that you'll find in, and then, then you've just got to navigate it and remember that whilst you're, at, you're asking someone for training, you're asking someone for knowledge and access to a broader mm. network, that that has to go against the value of your time that you're putting in to get there. There will come a time, I guess, when you feel like, now I know what I'm doing. Um, but that's the time that you need to sit down and renegotiate those terms with whoever it is you're working with and say, look, I don't feel I'm an apprentice anymore. I feel like I'm an instructor now, or I feel like I'm literally driving my own expeditions out, or I'm you know, covering these events. I feel like I should be, you know, being paid. And that's a, you know, that's a discussion to have with your employer. But I think you'll know that. It may come a bit early. You may get a boost, a bit of over self-confidence. Um, you know, maybe you'll be just put down a little bit and said, you know, when you've got another five expeditions under your belt or something like this. But remember, again, that's done for a reason because this is all done on experience, which, you know, we'll touch on, I think, next. But it is, you know, experience is important when it comes to um, negotiating what your worth is. Yeah, and I think you've, you've teed it up perfectly there. I've started, you know, Matt and I have had conversations, I've had conversations with Josh as well about how to make a career out of it. And a lot of it was, you know, you need to go out there and, and do expeditions, keep doing it, you know, start planning expeditions. And I think the big thing for me was, is, is that I will, nowadays, I plan expeditions, like I've got expeditions next year, I, I ran one this year. 
and I still have a massive safety net because I'll do all the planning, I'll do all the documents, I'll do risk assessment, but then I have people on the ground that do all the work because they're the guides, they're the ones that have been doing it for 10 plus years. And within that guiding team, you know, uh, I planned an expedition to go do Mont Blanc um, this summer, which was, you know, great fun. It was a great learning opportunity. We had a multitude of guides. And within that, we had trainee guides as well. Yeah. And so we're all sort of learning together. And there is that, it's that ability to, to learn, but not push yourself too far, because I'm very aware that this is a very small industry. You don't want to be the person that's known for with two expeditions going off and doing something stupid. Well, the, the thing is, is that it's that old kind of learning to walk before you can run, and it's very easy. I mean, the, mm. I guess the reason um, the reason it takes time and the reason there's a risk factor with expeditions is because there is a bloody great big risk, you know. So with right, anything yeah. that you do, and just because they don't happen doesn't mean they don't exist, and you know, until you've experienced things or had enough experience to have seen them while you've been shadowing somebody or even discussed them, someone's brought up that potential hazard and why we do this this way. If you've if you haven't been in that circle long enough and you don't understand all of the elements, it's super easy to get caught out later. Um because of course we never want things to go wrong when we're on expedition, no matter what kind of mm. expedition it is, but sadly because of their very nature they do. Um they just don't happen every time. Or every ten times, you know. Sometimes you've just got to be in the kind of industry or in the community for a little bit to start to hear of them happening, and then learn from those experiences um, before you uh, before you try and do it. But ultimately, that is the goal for everyone, right? If if that's what people want to do, if they want to start up on their own and do things, then um, absolutely, just yeah, do it within your capabilities. Yeah, I think diving is what solidified it for me because so I'm actually next week starting my commercial diver trade so this is going from i started as a recreational diver doing paddy to what everyone does i then transformed into technical diving which was a massive step up in knowledge and responsibility and things to go wrong i I dive on a rebreather which is you know awesome stuff and now i'm going into right this is actual paid work now this is me doing it but for me to go even after doing the course to me going to like doing big jobs they want me to have 250 hours minimum. Again, an experienced diver's maybe sitting on two and a half, three and a half thousand dives. Mm. And that's the kind of time where you think, okay, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a good diver, I guess, because it's experience, isn't it? But everybody wants to be the dive master. Everybody wants to be the dive instructor mm. after 50 dives. But there's a reason yeah. there's people who exist with three and a half, five, six, seven thousand dives in the logbook because that's what a real experienced diver looks like. And that's a guy who could fix anything at any point because he's seen it in that 5,000 dives that are locked. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's why I sort of stayed off. Like now, if I total it all up, I'm probably nearing 100 hours of diving because our dives are longer or sometimes I do really short dives. Um, And I don't feel confident doing my dive master yet. Uh, I'm sort of being pushed to do it. And like I'm sort of keen, but also I'm very aware of all the responsibilities that you take on. Mm. And I think you have to be really confident in what you're doing and also really confident in where you're the dive master. Yeah. I think that's the big thing, you know, and not just in diving, that could be applied anywhere, is that you could be a great mountain leader in the UK, 
if you came out to the Alps or if you went out to uh, the Arctic where you are about, it's a totally different skill set. It's a totally, you need to know that land. You need to know the threats that are there. Um, you know, even within the diving stuff, I'm going to be, you know, you start off as a tender. You're, yeah. you're on the surface doing the supply stuff. And then you'll go on to being a, you know, the diver in the water. Then you'll be a standby diver. Then you go on to do dive supervising. But when, as soon as you start professionalizing something, which is something the exhibition field is still in its infancy of, yeah. then everything, like, I've got a lot of regulations I have to follow with everything I do in diving now. And so, Matt, how do we manage this thing? Because if you go on LinkedIn, you know, a lot of people that work in the exhibition field, will, you see their bio, and it's just a real long list of courses. Yeah. There's so many courses available that you can do, and some courses are great, some courses are not so great. Where does that balance come nowadays between courses and experience when this industry is becoming more professional? So you are going to need a background to fall back on if something goes wrong. Well, I guess the best place to start is always to look at you know the leading industries. So it'd be things like TV and film, those kind of things, and scientific mm. work. So anything that revolves around those kind of more official channels of expedition thing of expedition work is usually a little bit more detailed in what its requirements are. It doesn't particularly mean those requirements are, um, are necessary, but it's definitely what the requirements are for you to get the work. So I've always said the same thing, you know, you can do an ML and then people will ask you if you've got an ML when you're going to go and, you know, guide something in Africa. But an ML yeah. that you did in Scotland <laughs> doesn't really help you in Morocco. <laughs> it, you know, but equally, it's it's a ticket that you hold that, you know, opens a couple of doors. So I would certainly do my research and see. And again, go on LinkedIn, look up 10 different types of, you know, expedition leader, medic, drivers, whatever you want to find. See what they've got written in the bio. Mm. See what's written in their qualifications. And then I would, you know, they would be good ones to start ticking off because they are ultimately what's going to get you um, work. The other thing would be, obviously, if you're working with an organization, maybe see if they'll help sponsor some of those things. I mean, we talked recently, haven't we, about a snowmobile license. They're yeah. handy to have, but it's something you can't do in the UK. You have to physically get no. somewhere and, you know, get someone to help you do the forms in a foreign language and, you know, and process all of that stuff. It's not super easy and it takes a lot, but it really does help. I mean, the work you can get as an English-speaking guide with a snowmobile license is really good. Yeah, and that could open a lot and it, more and things. It's just a simple thing. Yeah, but it's like, didn't you say to me, Matt, that that you've got a Norwegian license, so there's an actual snowmobile category on your license yeah. that you can have on. For me, because I want to go do it, it sounds awesome. I would have to carry a piece of paper with me because my yeah, you, license yeah, well, you would basically get a paper print up. So um, yeah, you do on your driving license here. You get S for snowmobile. Um, so your snowmobile sits on the bottom, and that's mm. you know, and that changes. It's the same as a moped in the UK. So at 16, you can drive up to 600 horse, uh, 600 cc, and I think it's a reduced horsepower. Mm. And then after you turn 17, it's either 17 or 18 with snowmobiles. Then you can go on to ride whatever you like. But that's how it's controlled. And there's police stops and things. So, yeah, you'd need to carry a bit of paper. But you you rarely get stopped unless you would have had an accident or something. And then you can have it just saved on your phone. Mm. So, But having it will open the doors and get you the jobs. That it will. And uh, and that's really important. And it's just thinking about those those small you know, intricacies. Like You do have to think about it a bit more, about how, how you're going to get it and how to get it regulated and and all those sort of things. Is there anything that you think people 
should invest time and money in, but don't. I wish people invested more time. It doesn't actually cost this, but I wish they invested more time in just going outside where they live and just mm. being outside, going for walks, learning, you know, gathering water and processing it and treating it, camping, wild camping if you're allowed to in areas or, you know, there's a stealth camping kind of a thing. I can't really advocate that. But, you know, it's... <laughs> You know, but get out there and Quick be outside. <laughs> you know, be outside. I wish people invested more time in their personal admin in the field. Because if you nail that, mm. I think there's there's too much premise on ticking boxes and getting certificates and looking cool and having the right kit on rather than actually being able to use it. So I wish people invested more time into using the stuff that they, they invest in um, and really getting those skill sets up. You know, light the fire. That, that should be an easy thing to do, you know, because you've just practiced it. You practice lighting fires in different environments when it's been raining, when it's been snowing, when it's been the middle of the sun. Mm. You know, what works as good tinder? Learn these skills because they're basic fundamentals. And, and ultimately, they can save your life, you know, and they're really important to have because with those fundamental skill sets, which cost nothing to carry around with you because they're just mental, you know, that streamlinedness of setting up your tent and get, because then you become efficient. You're the first person who's got the tent up, which means you're then able to help others get their stuff sorted, which means you're quicker on to the next thing. And as in an expedition industry, having that, that skill set of, I know what I'm doing and I can do that quicker and smoother and I can teach you how to do it. That for me is really employable because as soon as you see that in someone, you know, you've, you've got somebody who, um, who really knows what they're doing and they've, they've kind of got it nailed down. So I wish they'd invest more time in that. It doesn't cost anything. It's just time outside. And that's it. Like last night, I was a real loser. Uh, and I was sat there watching Netflix with my big gloves on, which, <laughs> and I'm just tying knots. Yeah. And I had my climbing rope out and just practicing all the knots I'm going to need to use next week. And it was just, you know, concurrent activity of, I hadn't tied knots for a couple of weeks. So I was like, right, I was going to go tie it. I'm going to tie 20 knots. I've got to keep going until I just can do them. I'm going to do them with gloves on, which is something I hadn't done in, in even longer. Yeah. And I think people often will do a course, they'll learn a skill, and then you'll get massive skill fade because yeah. you'll be. I, I remember I did a course with um, World Extreme Medicine when I was first starting out uh, in my sort of journey, and they taught me wilderness dentistry, which was awesome. It was awesome to learn. I have never been allowed to practice those skills. <laughs> ever again since yeah. so i don't feel confident making you know any sort of dental emergency care plan because that's it, isn't it? it i ain't going to be doing it yeah skill fade's a real issue and i guess that's it and that's kind of what i mean there's you know it can be anything it can be anything from just your general camp craft all of those things you you get skill fade and if you don't do them and you're not using them, you buy a new piece of equipment and all of a sudden you don't know how to use it or you've learned a new skill, a new navigation skill, but you can't quite remember exactly what that detail was, it's no longer use, worth anything. So get out there and use it and practice it because then, you, um, then you're really the full package. And I think also I think it's important to note that sometimes a little bit of information can be more dangerous than no information. I think that's been proven quite a lot um, you know, yeah. in, in the medical field, especially you know, people doing... Uh, sort of surgical crikes and, and putting, you know, straws down people's uh, throats. Yeah. Not, not ideal. Cause, so 
just to round it off, Matt, you know, sadly, this episode is coming out this Monday, just gone. We would have had the Royal Geographical Society Explore Festival, yeah. uh, which is a really good one. I go to it every year. I suggest if you want to get into expeditions, you go to that. Very cheap to go to. It's in London. What other networks are out there that people that want to work on expeditions, where, where should they look to? I guess it, it all comes down to those niches. You know, you've got your tourisms. Mm. Um, and again, that can be anything if you're interested in, you know, like you did with diving, for example. You need to be heading to little dive companies in Malta and, you know, in Egypt, making friends and trying to build those networks up. Or even your local dive club, you know, your local party dive club, see where they're going, try and get into that area. If it's, you know, medicine, as in, you know, going to be a, a medic, an expedition medic. Then again, start talking to the people who are running the companies, build up those networks. You've just got to do it specific to where you're headed. What again, and that goes back to what you're coming with in the beginning. In the beginning, you're coming with very little, but mm. obviously you've got a passion for the outdoors and maybe a particular type of thing that interests you. You've just got to find your in um, and then allow it to grow. And it grows by the more courses you do, you're going to meet more people. We've always had this experience versus kind of courses balance problem. If I get all the tickets, great but i haven't got any experience apart from the experience i got whilst yeah. doing the tickets and you know and sadly that's not enough it's not enough because you've never really been guided um or, or doing the job you've just been learning about it and it's you know it's the same with diving you know you can do all of your dive courses all the way up to instructor without ever actually freelance giving a single course yourself yeah or just go diving. Yeah, by or yourself. going diving by or yourself in a buddy. Yeah, with a buddy. Yeah, you can't do it. Um, you, you could literally. Well, you can. You can literally start from start to finish and only ever be with an instructor mm-hmm. who's going to stop anything that goes wrong. You know, that's not a true progression. Which is crazy. So you've got to get the experience as well, um, and that comes at an expense, doesn't it? We just. I just literally babbled on for five minutes about one. You know, get out there and do it. Get out there and really, really do it. Learn your skill set. Learn. Learn mm-hmm. being outside. Um, and the other one is paying for it. Paying to go somewhere. If you're not confident enough to experience the jungle for the first time, pay somebody to take you there. Save up for it and pay mm-hmm. someone to take you there. And use that as an investment in yourself. It's an investment in your education, an investment in the future you for job opportunities. And you're going to meet friends while you're there. You might get a job out of it. Because if you've got the right mindset, that's exactly what you look for. I mean, you were literally the prime example, right? You came on a course and you got a job yeah. after it. That's If you've got the right Ooh. mindset, <laughs> then you, you end up with it working in the right direction. So yeah. if you if you go in there wanting something out of it and you show off what you can do, there's a pretty good chance people are going to remember who you are. Yeah. Even if you can't tie knots. Even if you which can't. Which is why I tie, tie knots. Lots. Yeah, that's it. Or drive snowmobiles. that's true. So, um, or drive yeah. uh, 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 We're not going into We no, don't we have, have time, time to go into that. that but I, I, this is a not so short um, shot. But, <laughs> but my final tip to people would be to look at smaller companies. So, uh, if anyone follows me on Instagram, you'll know that I take a lot of photos. I am very thankful that I do get some work as a photographer. I contact really niche companies. You know, obviously everyone would love to work for the Natural History Unit with the BBC, but there are so many wildlife photography and videography companies and production companies in the UK and abroad that won't, don't get, you know, 100 emails a day. They may get 10. Yeah. And so your chances of just building experience you don't have to go it's like if you want to be a diplomat you don't go straight to the u.s right you go and get experience elsewhere and the same can be said here so don't be afraid 
of cold emailing and cold calling a load of different companies and just say, I'm really keen. And most of the time, people want to help people. Yeah. You know, if they can. Yeah, they do. That, that would be and I found, I think that's a relatively running theme in this industry, that people all want other people to succeed. I see a lot of, hmm. you know, job sharing, people sending out, I've just been sent this, I'm not available, anybody want it, kind of thing going on. Um, and I think that's really positive. And it really encourages growth in the industry, which is, which is really nice. Luke, that's an awesome place for us to wrap up for today. Guys, I hope you've loved this episode of our mini-series. We've got many, many more coming up. If there's anything you'd like us to talk about on the next episode, please drop us a message on our Instagram, which is at Medicine at the Frontier. We really appreciate some ratings and also if you to subscribe. Subscribing helps both of us. It makes us look good and it means you don't miss out on any of the good stuff that's coming up as we explore medicine on the frontier. <laughs>